Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to The Devil Within, another Season in Hell bonus episode today that admittedly veers into the world of conspiracy theories. Now, that's not something normally that interests me, to be honest. I haven't ever spent too much time investigating the, the big players in the genre, the Mount Rushmore of conspiracy theories, if you will. You know, the moon landing, the JFK assassination, Area 51, and the newest entry that quickly topped the charts. 9-11 was an inside job. I mean, I guess I just don't feel like I have to have an opinion on things like that. I'd rather focus my attention elsewhere. That's not to say that I'm blind to the fact that I peddle in a conspiracy genre of sorts. Demonic possession, unexplained events. I get it. Maybe I just like a good ghost story. And I definitely like supposedly, quote, unexplained events. Especially the research part. You never know what's going to come up. Which brings me to today's episode. I had the great privilege to interview some truly remarkable people for the most recent season of The Devil Within. One of those interviews was with Stuart Fillmore, a retired FBI agent with almost 30 years on the job. Stuart retired as an expert in many, many aspects of investigative work, and he was gracious enough to share his expertise on the American Mafia with us. And it was during that interview that Stuart mentioned mostly unprompted, something that caught my attention. I say mostly unprompted because I definitely primed the pump when I mentioned early on that I wasn't a journalist and that my main goal was just to tell an exciting story. And most importantly, I wasn't afraid of participating in some semi-reckless speculation if he felt so inclined. I'll share the raw interview clip to illustrate how it went down. So it's been it's been two or three years ago, uh, maybe a little longer. But uh, I, I read a book by Tom O'Neill. Um, golly, what was the name of the book? I forget. Golly, sorry, Tom, I'm forgetting the name of the book. But oh, chaos. Uh, the name of, it was chaos, and it was effectively a deep dive into the Manson case and that potentially how Manson might have at one point come across the CIA and that he had been, uh, uh, you know, brainwashed and effectively put in many of the places he was put by the CIA. Um, it sounds ludicrous. It, it sounds, um, you know, like uh, just wild. That sounds like MK ultra. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. That, that Manson at one point had uh, contact with Jolly West, who was the, the CIA psychiatrist that uh, was involved in MK ultra. And when I first, yeah, when I first uh, got into this uh, or, or started reading the book, I, I gave it no credibility whatsoever. I thought this just sounds off the wall. But if you read his book, he he documents this stuff pretty well and makes for a compelling case, and, and makes you at least justifies a second look at at, at some of the things that Manson uh, did. And so when when we had initially made contact about uh, this podcast. 
I I was thinking along the lines of uh, you know is Berkowitz uh, was Berkowitz possibly an MK Ultra guy? Um, I can't I couldn't find anything on that. Um, and his background, I'm not sure would have um, where he would have been in a situation where he would have come in contact with that, other than through this uh, this uh, church of process thing. Now, Mr. Fillmore is a seasoned investigator with, as mentioned, decades of field work under his belt. He's one of those seen it all type of agents. And now he's a podcast host with a great show called Back in Crime that takes listeners inside the crime scene tape of some of the most famous murders and heists in history. It's definitely worth a listen. I'll leave a link in the show notes. All that is to say, he knows a good story when he hears one, or when he tells one. And MK Ultra is one hell of a story. But is there actually a chance that David Berkowitz was a secret subject of this infamous and illegal mind control program orchestrated by the CIA? Let's dive in. In the early years of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, incredible reports began to trickle in to the corridors of the American intelligence community about a weapon of near unlimited power. It was feared that the Soviets had successfully developed a drug that would allow them to completely control the minds of virtually anyone they chose. A subject's transformation would happen in two steps. First, their existing psyche would be completely destroyed, erased to the point that no recognizable characteristics of the subject remained. If they happened to run into an acquaintance before reprogramming occurred, the acquaintance would swear they were talking to a completely different person. These early reports were spotty at best, and it was discerned that, through a gruesome journey of trial and error, reprogramming would include vestiges of the subject's earlier personality to allow for successful reintegration into society with as little risk as possible. They wanted them to at least be somewhat recognizable if they ran into someone from their old lives. Initially, the CIA was tasked with evaluating the risk that a program like that, if true, would pose to national security. The assessment was truly terrifying. Such an insidious, covert infiltration of the human mind was essentially impossible to defend against. In fact, there was the distinct possibility that enemies of the state, under the invisible control of a dangerous superpower, had already assumed dangerous positions of influence in our own government. In response, the United States adopted the age-old tactic of dealing with a clear and present danger to the sovereignty of the United States. We completely overreacted. Basically, our position was this. Just in case the rumors are true, we're going to throw an obscene amount of resources at our own mind control program and beat those bastards at their own game. Laws and decency and transparency and humanity be damned. Hey, it worked with the Manhattan Project. We were so worried the Nazis were going to beat us to a nuclear weapon that we would end up creating something that no one really wanted, wasn't really needed, and only served to accomplish the technological achievement of us being capable of destroying ourselves. Yay, science as competition for world domination. So, in 1953, the CIA was granted authorization to launch the super-secret program they chose to call MK Ultra. Yes, 
It sounds like an Armageddon-inducing MacGuffin in a Bond film. But hey, we've always been great at naming things. If all this wasn't scary enough, get this. The entire program was turned over to one guy. One decision-maker trusted with tremendous resources, a very vague and hazy objective, and absolutely no oversight from anyone. Who could be given such immense power? An elected official who swore an oath to protect America and enforce her laws? No. A seasoned diplomat with a long record of leadership and proven management skills? Nope. MKUltra was handed over to a CIA chemist named Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. In his book, Poisoner-in-Chief, author Stephen Kinzer wrote that, quote, Gottlieb realized mind control was a two-step process. First, you had to blast away the existing mind. Second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into the resulting void. He didn't get too far on number two, but he did a hell of a lot of work on number one. I'm sure we're all familiar with the arms race between the U.S. and the Soviets that defined much of the Cold War. Who could build the most nukes and have the most efficient way of delivering them to the doorstep of the enemy? Within a short period of time, both sides had enough nuclear power to destroy the entire planet many times over with payload delivery systems across land, sea, and air. But there was another quiet race between these two behemoths. The race for the wonder drug that could effectively render conventional warfare obsolete. This was still the early 50s, and the rumors of a psychedelic fungi that grew in the inaccessible jungles of southern Mexico were just that. Rumors. But the possibility was enough for a government-funded expedition whose objective was to find an elusive shaman who supposedly knew where these, quote, magic mushrooms grew and how to prepare them for human consumption. In their never-ending search for the miracle weapon, CIA operatives searched here in the remote mountain areas of southern Mexico for what up to then had been considered a myth, magic mushrooms. They used this man, a part-time chemist with the CIA, to dupe this man, a vice president of a bank and an amateur mycologist or mushroom expert, to try to get to the magic mushrooms and turn them into a drug. But it would be the amateur, R. Gordon Wasson and his colleagues, who would win the race and develop the drug psilocybin from the magic mushrooms. We went into the Mazatec area, far from the highways, remote from Mexico City. There we found that rotten bagasse, as it's called, bagasso, covered with mushrooms. These mushrooms I didn't know, didn't never, had never seen. They were the sacred mushrooms. Wasson would also discover and record the ancient mystical rites of the mushrooms from a local shaman or magical priestess, Maria Sabina. Yeah. Incredibly, the expedition was successful, and the result was the discovery of psilocybin. Once synthesized in a laboratory setting with doses regulated to ensure accurate, repeatable testing, The only thing left was to find test subjects. And right off the bat, the government went and did government-type things. Over and over in my research for this episode, I read and heard the word unwitting. Yeah, 
They were straight up dosing people who had no idea what the hell was going on. And worse, they went after people who couldn't fight back and wouldn't be believed if they tried to hold anyone responsible. Drifters, prostitutes, drug addicts, people who wouldn't be missed. Expendable Americans. I found an old report from ABC News from 1979. Listen to this guy. Listen to him squirm when confronted with the idea of drugging unknowing test subjects. Did you ever consider what would have happened if any of these substances were given to, say, unwitting people? Oh, I don't remember having considered that specifically. I... What if you... I, I trust perhaps you've thought about it. Uh... Well, I haven't worried about it. Uh, I... You asked, your question again, what would I have thought had I known that uh, the Any of these substances were being would have been given to unwitting persons? Uh, you mean a, a hostile agent in an, of another government? No, well, I, I mean, that was probably I mean one of the things they had in I mind. I mean, testing it out on an American citizen. I... I guess I must seem very, very cold-blooded about this, but I don't recall ever having been very much preoccupied with that, uh, with that issue. But many drugs were tested in this way. A decision was made at the highest levels of the CIA to do testing on unwitting Americans. As one CIA document says, such testing would be operationally realistic. A former CIA official who worked on these programs describes for the first time how the decision was made. He did not wish to be filmed or recorded. Thus his remarks are read by someone else. I think every last one of us felt sorry to attempt this kind of thing. We knew we were crossing the line. Every decent kid knows he shouldn't steal, but he does it sometimes. We knew damn well we didn't want anyone else to know what we were doing. The decision was made to do testing on unwitting victims. It was decided they should be on the fringes of society because they were most vulnerable. It was the borderline underworld. Prostitutes, drug addicts, and other small timers would be powerless to seek any kind of revenge in case they found out. And as their predecessors had... Yeah, totally legit. It was around this time that Dr. Gottlieb was made aware of a pharmaceutical company out of Switzerland named Sandoz and a breakthrough drug that had just concluded its human testing. The results were very promising. The drug was called LSD. But it was a discovery here in Basel, Switzerland at Sandoz Laboratories by Dr. Albert Hoffman that led the intelligence agencies of America to believe that they had found the panacea. Originally synthesized in 1938 and accidentally ingested by its creator, Albert Hoffman, almost a decade later, LSD was the first widely tested psychedelic drug on humans. It proved non-addictive, with very few side effects, and induced truly remarkable auditory and visual hallucinations, as well as mystical experiences, amnesia, and ego dissolution. The discovery was lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD. It was one of the first times that anybody had run into 
a powerful drug that was different than anything else that they knew anything about. John Gittinger, recently retired chief psychologist for the CIA. This is the first time Gittinger has been interviewed publicly. We could disable a whole city by putting a very small amount on a water supply. After all of these years of us, uh, uh, those of us who are involved in this, looking for this secret drug, uh, this was the only thing that began to look for the first time like it might be something like that. An American military officer stationed in Basel, Switzerland, was gathering intelligence on the new drug and suggested it was, indeed, just what Dr. Gottlieb was looking for and that there was a high possibility that the Soviets were also aware of the drug's existence. When, a short time later, Sandoz Labs announced it would be making a large batch of individual doses available on the open market, the U.S. stepped in and bought them all. Why? For sex parties, obviously. CIA's interest in LSD was intense. The worry was that the Russians would get hold of it. Were the Soviets into LSD? I'm going to have to say I'm sure they were, but if you ask me to prove it, I, I've never seen any direct proof of it. But at one point, intelligence information received from Switzerland said that Sandoz Laboratories was about to put 100 million doses of LSD on the open market. And it caused enough concern within the agency that the United States was prepared to buy the entire supply. If you remember, Agent Fillmore told us that one of the bedrock operational mandates of the CIA is that they were not supposed to conduct any business within the borders of the United States. They were restricted to intelligence gathering activities on foreign soil only. No exceptions. Well, except for all those times that they did stuff here. Like Operation Midnight Climax. Again, pretty cool name. And what was Operation Midnight Climax? Sex parties, where they would spike the drinks of the male participants with LSD, and then a bevy of sex workers on the CIA payroll would engage in all sorts of sexual activity, and then, and this is the whole point of the operation, these women, having been trained in interrogation techniques by the CIA, would see if they could get these men, in the full throes of an LSD trip, to admit their deepest, darkest secrets by way of some post-coil pillow talk. These operations were staggeringly successful, to the point that the people running the show wanted to push the envelope. They wanted to see if these women could get these dosed-up sex fiends to not only spill the beans on the skeletons in their closet, but to see if they would agree to commit varying degrees of criminal activity. Robbery? Yeah. Assault and battery? Sure. Assassination? Probably. As this 1952 CIA memo says, the aim is controlling an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against such fundamental laws of nature as self-preservation. Okay, so things were starting to get out of control and the people running Operation Midnight Climax started getting careless and reckless they actually decided to dose one of their own without his knowledge, and things went south in a hurry. The unfortunate man's name was Frank Olson, a scientist for MKUltra. Frank was with his colleagues on a team-building retreat with the rest of MKUltra 
when he was served a spiked drink. It didn't go well, and later that night, he allegedly committed suicide by jumping out the window of his hotel room in New York City. The brilliant YouTube channel, The Y Files, did a fantastic episode about the Frank Olson incident that you should definitely check out. Again, I'll leave the link in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of people these days are charging into the new year, full of confidence and passion and big ideas and gym memberships and diet plans. And maybe that's you. And it's okay if it's not you. Because a lot of us are still searching, searching for that better version of ourselves. The new year can be a difficult time. As I've said many times over the past few seasons of this show, I've been in therapy on and off for my entire adult life. And one of the main things I've learned is that massive change happens in small steps. Maybe ditch the extreme resolutions and take a small step towards a better you. BetterHelp offers online therapy. After they learn a little bit about you, you'll get matched with a licensed therapist for sessions that fit your schedule. BetterHelp is flexible, convenient, and if you're not happy with the therapist you're paired with, you can switch for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash devilwithin today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash devilwithin. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But for 20-plus years, the program would continue its quixotic search for the ultimate weapon, and its dutiful knight-errant, Sidney Gottlieb, was given carte blanche. A seemingly bottomless budget, a license to kill, and tons and tons of acid. And when I say he had a license to kill, I'm kind of not kidding. In an interview about his Poisoner-in-Chief book, again, author Stephen Kinzer stated, quote, This guy, Dr. Gottlieb, had a license to kill. He was allowed to requisition human subjects across the United States and around the world and subject them to any kind of abuse that he wanted, even up to the level of it being fatal. Yet nobody looked over his shoulder. Yeah, let me repeat that. He was allowed to requisition human subjects. Like a warehouse clerk requisitioning toilet paper, Gottlieb was fed an endless string of humans for his experiments. And there was no one looking over his shoulder, no one to stop him from pushing things too far in his attempts to find the chemical means of shattering the human ego. Not even when it resulted in the death of a number of his subjects. Then things got really dark. But before we go there, I wanted to share some delicious irony that occurred in the vast and nearly unregulated LSD experiments carried out across the United States in the late 50s and early 60s. So, Dr. Gottlieb arranged for the U.S. government to acquire the global supply of LSD to the tune of a quarter million dollars to Sandoz Labs in Switzerland. 
Now he just needed a way to distribute the doses while gathering the data he needed to gauge the potential mind control efficacy of LSD. How did he do that? He lied. Fake health organizations, bogus research entities, full-on cloak-and-dagger operations like Midnight Climax, and many, many other sinister fronts that allowed for widespread distribution of LSD by way of mostly reputable hospitals and clinics across the country. And some prisons and mental institutions. That's where the real shit went down. But more on that later. The irony of the whole MK Ultra situation is this. Ostensibly, Gottlieb and the CIA were working to uphold and defend certain American ideals through the desired ability to control people's minds when they didn't know it was happening, to develop the ability to insert people into the corridors of power in our enemies' governments where we control their actions. But what they couldn't have possibly seen coming was the fallout of getting LSD into the hands and minds of people like Allen Ginsberg, Ken Kesey, and Robert Hunter. These men received their LSD through programs that were fronts for the CIA and were personally overseen by Gottlieb. The thing is, these guys loved it. Ginsberg, the great American poet, would insist to anyone he met that they had to undertake the, quote, great personal adventure that acid affords an individual. Ken Kesey, the award-winning author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he, along with his group of so-called merry pranksters, would paint a bus in psychedelic colors and drive across the country, introducing what would come to be known as the 60s counterculture to America. Oh, and Robert Hunter? No big deal. He was the lyricist for the band The Grateful Dead, who probably more than any other musical act embodied and glorified the use of psychedelic drugs and more importantly, took it mainstream. So the very perceived anti-American values that the CIA was trying to defeat across the globe by experimenting with LSD, they wound up creating in their own backyard by experimenting with LSD. It's almost Shakespearean. The darker side of dosing subjects against their will is illustrated in the person of notorious Boston gangster Whitey Bulger. While Mr. Bulger was in prison, he was made aware of an experiment that could potentially cure schizophrenia. Now, Bulger wasn't diagnosed with that particular ailment. The approach from the people running the program appealed to the inmate's sense of altruism and maybe some perks on the inside that would make his time go by a little faster. Bulger agreed to volunteer for the program, which consisted of him taking LSD every day for a year. Eventually, Bulger got wise to the fact that the program had nothing to do with finding a cure for anything. He was just a guinea pig at the mercy of government-funded maniacs who were actually trying to induce the complete breakdown of his mental faculties. Years later, and with the full knowledge of what had happened to him, Bulger vowed revenge on the doctors who fed him LSD day after day after day. I'm not sure if he ever made good on that threat. But easily, the most disgusting and morally reprehensible aspect of MKUltra was the open alliance with the madmen from the Japanese and German concentration camps of World War II. The CIA actually hired Japanese and Nazi doctors who had extensive experience with torture techniques and the application of drugs 
to enhance interrogation practices. They hired them to train their own guys. Gottlieb then oversaw the creation of detention centers across Europe and East Asia, primarily in territories under the control of the U.S. government, so, you know, they could do whatever the hell they wanted. Then, it was just a matter of recruiting subjects, or kidnapping them, shanghaiing them, as it were. <laughs> Look, it's a lot easier to torture someone if you're told they're an enemy of the state or an expendable asset. Foreign spies, prisoners, traitors to the cause, whatever got them strapped into the gurney and dosed up. Eventually, after untold suffering and loss of life, Dr. Sidney Gottlieb would concede that mind control was, in fact, impossible. The election of Richard Nixon and his eventual dismissal of CIA Director Richard Helms in 73 would spell the end of Gottlieb's secret world of MKUltra. The program was deemed so secretive that, upon its shuttering, Gottlieb himself drove out to the CIA records facility and personally oversaw the destruction of all evidence that MKUltra ever existed. But apparently he missed a few documents. Some years back, a Freedom of Information Act request turned up some interesting facts. I'll read a bit from it now. Project MKUltra was the codename for a covert CIA mind control and chemical interrogation research program run by the Office of Scientific Intelligence, the OSI. This official U.S. government program began in the early 1950s, continuing at least through the late 1960s, and it supposedly used United States citizens as unwitting test subjects. Published evidence indicates that Project MKUltra involved the surreptitious use of many types of drugs, as well as other methods, to manipulate individual mental states and to alter brain function. Project MKUltra was first brought to wide public attention in 1975 by the U.S. Congress through investigations by the Church Committee and by a presidential commission known as the Rockefeller Commission. Investigative reports were hampered by the fact that the CIA director, Richard Helms, ordered all MKUltra files destroyed in 1973. The Church Committee and Rockefeller Commission investigations relied on the sworn testimony of direct participants and on the relatively small number of documents that survived Helms's destruction order. Although the CIA insists that MK-Ultra-type experiments have been abandoned, 14-year CIA veteran Victor Marchetti has stated in various interviews that the CIA routinely conducts disinformation campaigns and that CIA mind control research continued. In a 1977 interview, Marchetti specifically called the CIA claim that MKUltra was abandoned a cover story. On the Senate floor in 1977, Senator Ted Kennedy said, the deputy director of the CIA revealed that over 30 universities and institutions were involved in a, quote, extensive testing and experimentation program, which included covert drug tests on unwitting citizens at all social levels, high and low, American citizens and foreigners. Several of these tests involved the administration of LSD to, quote, unwitting subjects in social situations. At least one death, that of Dr. Frank Olson, resulted from these activities. The agency itself acknowledged that these tests made little scientific sense. The agents doing the monitoring were not qualified scientific observers. So what does that all mean? Well, 
It means that MKUltra did not shut down in 1963 as the CIA would have us believe, and it might also give credence to what Agent Fillmore told me next. Um, and so there's just uh, no doubt that that's out there. And the CIA over the, over the years uh, has done some pretty wacky things uh, uh, that would actually be downright illegal. So um, it's not too far of a stretch that if, if uh, Berkowitz, you know, had all these, uh, you know, he's in the army, he's in this church of process, he's uh, uh, on LSD, he's been arrested, he's in the military. All those things put him in a position where he could have been a part of some kind of experiment that uh, he might not have even known he was a part of. I mean, think about it. Berkowitz left for Korea a relatively normal guy. No past history of hearing voices. He was a proud Jewish man. No extreme violent tendencies. Then what? He goes to a foreign country as a member of the American military. He's exposed to LSD. He suddenly converts to a new religion that demands extreme views on morality. He comes home and no one from his old life recognizes him. In fact, several were quoted as saying that he was a different person. Then, almost overnight, he becomes a serial killer prowling the city, night after night, methodically searching for victims at the command of a 6,000-year-old demon that communicates with him through an awesome black lap. If MK Ultra was still up and running in the mid-70s, Berkowitz just may have been one of those failed experiments. And to wrap this up, if you get a chance, check out some of Berkowitz's more recent jailhouse interviews online. Granted, he's a mass murderer who deserves to rot in jail. But on the surface, he seems like a very normal dude. For a second, just look at this from the angle that he was indeed an MK Ultra subject. And he became aware of it after the fact. Years in jail would allow perhaps for some version of the man he used to be to return, for some healing to happen. It appeared Whitey Bulger got better after a year of daily doses of LSD. But it would also explain Berkowitz's utter reluctance to return to society, his complete refusal of parole. Maybe he felt safe in jail, away from the shadowy figures seeking to control him once again. Probably not. But interesting to think about. Thanks for listening to The Devil Within. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find The Devil Within on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok at The Devil Within Pod, or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Devil Within, A Season in Hell is a Cloud 10 Media production, recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarna. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.